Well, good morning to everyone. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, today we begin with a passage that we've just heard from the epistle to the Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. He has spoken to us by a son, and today this son, whom we know as Jesus the Christ, speaks to us through the Gospels of a foreign kingdom, of a world not of our own making, but of one he and his Father want to give us if only we would fully open ourselves to receive it. He speaks of those to whom this this kingdom belongs, of how we might enter it, and of what we will find there once we do enter it. It is a place of startling reversals. Think back on the story of the Gospels as we have encountered them again and again, year in and year out, about this kingdom of God and where our presumptions are upended. Here, the last shall be first, and the servants of all will be the greatest. Remember that teaching. Here, truth does not lie slain, as in the story of John the Baptist. Truth does not lie slain as the wicked rejoice. Now here in, in this kingdom of which Jesus speaks, there is restoration, and there is healing, there is mercy, there is consolation. The stories tells us that Jairus' daughter lives, and the hungry are fed. The physically and the spiritually blind are given sight. And we, we the participants, we the citizens of this kingdom who lay aside our corrupting desires, we are given new life. As I said, this kingdom is not of our making alone. And as Jesus said to Pilate in John's Gospel, my kingdom is not from this world, but yet, brothers and sisters, it is in this world that we live and that we die. A New Testament scholar by the name of David Rhodes writes, the kingdom offers a vision to live for, a vision large enough to encompass the transformation of the world, end quote. A kingdom, a vision to live for, something to aspire for, something to call us beyond what we see in the everyday. But first, we need to transform our hearts, to expand our imaginations, and open our eyes to see the evidence of the kingdom that is miraculously and wonderfully already present. But this is not an easy thing to do. For often our own motivations, our own impulses will blind us and set us at war against the kingdom, even, even as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. This conflict, this tension between the aspiration and the reality is powerfully illustrated in a, a film that I like. It's called The Mission. Perhaps some of you may know of this film. It is set in Peru during the colonial era. And it tells of the tale of Jesuit missionaries 
who are set among the indigenous Indians, and of the subsequent threat that their success presents to the European powers. Now, in thinking about the mission, we could veer off into a discussion of colonialism and Christianity, a discussion on the 20th century liberation theology and its critique of the West. That could make for a fascinating adult forum, perhaps, one of these days. But my interest in bringing the mission and that idea before us, brothers and sisters, is not to go down that road, but to consider the violent destruction of what is derisively called in the film a paradise on earth and the complicity of a high-level church official who has come from Rome to dissolve the Christian missions. The complicity of one who proclaims the kingdom and yet has come to bring it to an end. The powers that be are given free reign. Cannon, gunfire, and flaming arrows bring death and an end to these outposts of the kingdom of God. And though the church official is shocked when all this happens, the representatives of Spain and Portugal merely shrug. We must work in the world, says one. The world is thus. And no, the church official responds, thus have we made the world. Thus have I made it. All of us have a role to play as the kingdom continues to break into our world. We may aid in its coming. We may find ourselves, as I said, accidentally or intentionally fighting against it, but the kingdom will come. That is our prayer, repeated again and again and again. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The mission ends with one of my favorite quotes from the Gospel of John. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that light, of course, is Jesus Christ, who challenges us and who welcomes us. To the legally astute Pharisees and the disciples encountered in today's gospel, he offers a radical rethinking of marriage that affirms and expands their understanding. Yes, yes, he says, right. Yes, Moses allowed a man to divorce his wife, but it is because of your hardness of hearts that he wrote this commandment. And then Jesus says, in a sense, now consider that this union, this union is sacred, and that the wife has rights. The wife has rights and standing on par with the husband. Not only can she divorce him, but she can, he rather, can be understood to commit adultery against her. Now, now you know, for us, this is like old news. But if we transport ourselves back to first century Palestine, heck, we transport ourselves to some places in the world even today, this is a disturbing and unsettling idea. As I say, some of the issues raised are not settled, even in our day, even in our time, for we live in the world. What God has joined together, let no one separate. I've said that many times, every wedding ceremony. It sounds great, 
Sounds great on wedding day. What God has joined, let no man tear asunder. And yet, vows can be broken, hearts shattered, lives, very lives put at risk. What God intended no longer exists, and separation is best, not only best, but sometimes necessary. We are not called to suffer abuse within the bonds of holy matrimony. That is not the way of the kingdom. Our gospel today ends with the disciples trying to keep children away from Jesus, who, by his very presence, we follow the story of the gospel, by his very presence, Jesus represents the kingdom of God come into the world of man. We should perhaps pity the poor disciples, because in them we should be able to see our own selves stumbling and fumbling along and sometimes blind to what Jesus is saying, what we may have just heard previously in the gospel. Just a little while previously, earlier to this passage, the disciples have tried to stop someone from casting out demons in Jesus' name. They're feeling very proud of themselves. They say to Jesus, well, we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. Jesus says, do not stop him. And today again, they find themselves taking on the role of gatekeeper, trying to keep the children from coming, in a sense, into the kingdom. And Jesus, indignant, says, let the children come. It is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. He is not speaking of children per se as we see them or idealizing children as we might think of them. He is calling us to a certain orientation, to an attitude of trust and surrender, of a willingness to live as if the kingdom is already present, as if it is real and we, its noble and humble citizens, are the ones who, with God's help, are bringing his love into the world, who are shining his light into even the darkest places. This attitude of openness, of acceptance, of how he says it is reflected in a child, that attitude is absolutely essential. What does he say in the Gospels? Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Never enter it. Go into one of the translations and one of the understandings of it. It's like a, a double negative that Jesus says. And what is, in a sense, he's saying, whoever does not receive the kingdom as a little child, not only will not enter it, but there is no way that they will enter it. No possible way. Not today, not ever. What is required is this openness. What is required is this attitude of acceptance. And after he makes this pronouncement, perhaps startling everyone around him, he embraces these children. He blesses them. And in that, we can see, brothers and sisters, a glorious and beautiful gesture of his divine mercy and of his love. The good news is that a blessing awaits all of us. 
and that it can be experienced in many and myriad ways on this day, can be experienced in this hour, it can be experienced before we leave this sacred place. There is a blessing for you, the embrace of God's love for you, the kingdom made present and real for you. But there is a sobering truth that also accompanies this joy of the kingdom. For there is a price that must be paid and to enter this kingdom. That price we will hear of next week in our gospel readings when an, a young man of means, you might call him in a sense the prince of Annapolis with a house on the Severn River, maybe a 40, 50 foot catamaran docked at Annapolis Yacht Club when he comes and asks how to enter the kingdom and what price must be paid. And the disciples themselves who will look around and say, well, we have given up so much. And where is our blessing? We will hear more of that price to be paid on the entrance of the kingdom. But today, today let us, let us glory, let us rejoice in the slow and steady transformation of our world that is inaugurated by the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is yet to come, and who welcomes us, who embraces us into his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, let us, in the words of St. Augustine, sing Alleluia and keep on walking, keep on praying, keep on working. For though we live in the world, and as we look around, we can say, yes, the world is thus, as they said in the mission. The world is thus, that we, the children of God, do not surrender to the world. Amen.